Section 16 of The Life of Samuel Johnson, Volume 3. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. The Life of Samuel Johnson, Volume 3, by James Boswell, Section 16. After breakfast, Johnson carried me to see the garden belonging to the school of Ashbourne which is very prettily formed upon a bank, rising gradually behind the house. The Reverend Mr. Langley, the headmaster, accompanied us. Footnote. Mr. Langley, I have little doubt, is the Mr. L. of the following passage in Johnson's letter, written from Ashbourne on July the 12th, 1775. Mr. L. and the doctor still continue at variance, and the doctor is afraid, and Mr. L. not desirous of a reconciliation. I therefore step over at by-times, and of by-times I have enough. End of footnote. While we sat basking in the sun upon a seat here, I introduced a common subject of complaint, the very small salaries which many curates have, and I maintained that no man should be invested with the character of a clergyman unless he has a security for such an income as will enable him to appear respectable, that therefore a clergyman should not be allowed to have a curate unless he gives him a hundred pounds a year. If he cannot do that, let him perform the duty himself. Johnson to be sure, sir, it is wrong that any clergyman should be without a reasonable income. But as the church revenues were sadly diminished at the Reformation, the clergy who have livings cannot afford in many instances to give good salaries to curates without leaving themselves too little. And if no curate were to be permitted unless he had a hundred pounds a year, their number would be very small which would be a disadvantage, as then there would not be such choice in the nursery for the church, curates being candidates for the higher ecclesiastical offices, according to their merit and good behaviour. He explained the system of the English hierarchy very well. It is not thought fit, said he, to trust a man with the care of a parish until he has given proof as a curate that he shall deserve such a trust. This is an excellent theory, and if the practice were according to it, the Church of England would be admirable indeed. However, as I have heard Dr. Johnson observe as to the universities, bad practice does not infer that the Constitution is bad. We had with us at dinner several of Dr. Taylor's neighbours, good civil gentlemen who seemed to understand Dr. Johnson very well and not to consider him in the light that a certain person did. Footnote, George Garrick, end of footnote. Who being struck, or rather stunned, by his voice and manner, when he was afterwards asked what he thought of him, answered, He's a tremendous companion. Johnson told me that Taylor was a very sensible, acute man, and had a strong mind that he had great activity in some respects, and yet such a sort of indolence that if you should put a pebble upon his chimney-piece, 
you would find it there in the same state a year afterwards. And here is a proper place to give an account of Johnson's humane and zealous interference in behalf of the Reverend Dr. William Dodd, former prebendary of Brecon and chaplain in ordinary to His Majesty. Footnote. While Lord Bathurst held the great seal, an attempt was in vain made to corrupt him by a secret offer to Lady Bathurst of three thousand guineas for the living of St. George's, Hanover Square. The offer was traced to the famous Dr. Dodd, then a king's chaplain, and he was immediately dismissed. End of footnote. Celebrated as a very popular preacher, an encourager of charitable institution, and author of a variety of works, chiefly theological. Footnote. Horace Walpole, who accompanied Prince Edward to a service at the Magdalen House in 1760, thus describes the service. As soon as we entered the chapel, the organ played, and the Magdalens sung a hymn in parts. You cannot imagine how well. The chapel was dressed with orange and myrtle, and there wanted nothing but a little incense to drive away the devil, or to invite him. Prayers then began, psalms and a sermon, the latter by a young clergyman, one Dodd, who contributed to the popish idea one had imbibed by haranguing entirely in the French style, and very eloquently and touchingly. He apostrophized the lost sheep, who sobbed and cried from their souls. So did my Lady Hartford and Fanny Pelham, till, I believe, the city dames took them both for Jane Shores. The confessor then turned to the audience, and addressed himself to his royal highness, whom he called most illustrious prince, beseeching his protection. In short, it was a very pleasing performance, and I got the most illustrious to desire it might be printed. Dr. A. Carlyle heard Dodd preach in 1769. We had, he says, difficulty to get tolerable seats. The crowd of genteel people was so great. The unfortunate young women were in a latticed gallery, where you could only see those who chose to be seen. The preacher's text was, If a man look down on a woman to lust after her, and etc., the text itself was shocking, and the sermon was composed with the least possible delicacy, and was a shocking insult on a sincere penitent, and fuel for the warm passions of the hypocrites. The fellow was handsome, and delivered his discourse remarkably well for a reader. When he had finished, there were unceasing whispers of applause, which I could not help contradicting aloud, and condemning the whole institution, as well as the exhibition of the preacher, as contra bonos mores, and a disgrace to a Christian city. Goldsmith in 1774 exposed Dodd as a quacking divine in his retaliation. He describes Dr. Douglas as the scourge of impostors, the terror of quacks, and he continues, But now he is gone, and we want a detector. Our Dodds shall be pious, our Kenricks shall lecture. End of footnote.
having unhappily contracted expensive habits of living partly occasioned by licentiousness of manners he in an evil hour when pressed by want of money and dreading an exposure of his circumstances forged a bond of which he attempted to avail himself to support his credit flattering himself with hopes that he might be able to repay its amount without being detected the person whose name he thus rashly and criminally presumed to falsify was the earl of chesterfield footnote the fifth earl the successor of the celebrated earl on february the twenty second seventeen seventy seven dodd was convicted of forging a bond for four thousand two hundred pounds in his name the earl was unfortunate in his tutors for he had been also under cuthbert shaw end of footnote to whom he had been a tutor and who he perhaps in the warmth of his feelings flattered himself would have generously paid the money in case of an alarm being taken rather than suffer him to fall a victim to the dreadful consequences of violating the law against forgery the most dangerous crime in a commercial country but the unfortunate divine had the mortification to find that he was mistaken his noble pupil appeared against him and he was capitally convicted johnson told me that dr dodd was very little acquainted with him having been but once in his company many years previous to this period which was precisely the state of my own acquaintance with dodd footnote mr croker quotes the following letter of dodd dated seventeen fifty i spent yesterday afternoon with johnson the celebrated author of the rambler who is of all others the oddest and most peculiar fellow i ever saw he is six feet high has a violent convulsion in his head and his eyes are distorted he speaks roughly and loud listens to no man's opinions thoroughly pertinacious of his own good sense flows from him in all he utters and he seems possessed of a prodigious fund of knowledge which he is not at all reserved in communicating but in a manner so obstinate ungenteel and boorish as renders it disagreeable and dissatisfactory in short it is impossible for words to describe him he seems often inattentive to what passes in company and then looks like a person possessed by some superior spirit i have been reflecting on him ever since i saw him he is a man of most universal and surprising genius but in himself particular beyond expression dodd was born in seventeen twenty nine end of footnote but in his distress he bethought himself of Johnson's persuasive power of writing. If haply it might avail to obtain for him the royal mercy. He did not apply to him directly, but, extraordinary as it may seem, through the late Countess of Harrington, who wrote a letter to Johnson asking him to employ his pen in favour of Dodd. Mr. Allen, the printer, who was Johnson's landlord and next neighbour in Bolt Court, 
and for whom he had much kindness. Footnote. One of my best and tenderest friends, Johnson called him, end of footnote, was one of Dodd's friends, of whom to the credit of humanity be it recorded that he had many who did not desert him, even after his infringement of the law had reduced him to the state of a man under sentence of death. Mr. Allen told me that he carried Lady Harrington's letter to Johnson, that Johnson read it walking up and down his chamber, and seemed much agitated, after which he said, I will do what I can, and certainly he did make extraordinary exertions. He this evening, as he had obligingly promised in one of his letters, put into my hands the whole series of his writings upon this melancholy occasion, and I shall present my readers with the abstract which I made from the collection, in doing which I studied to avoid copying what had appeared in print, and now make part of the edition of Johnson's works, published by the booksellers of London, but taking care to mark Johnson's variations in some of the pieces there exhibited. Dr. Johnson wrote in the first place, Dr. Dodd's speech to the recorder of London at the Old Bailey, when sentence of death was about to be pronounced upon him. He wrote also the convict's address to his unhappy brethren, a sermon delivered by Dr. Dodd in the chapel of Newgate. Footnote. The convict's address to his unhappy brethren being a sermon preached by the Reverend Dr. Dodd, Friday, June the 6th, 1777, in the chapel of Newgate, while under sentence of death for forging the name of the Earl of Chesterfield on a bond of £4,200, sold by the booksellers and news carriers, price two pence. Johnson wrote to Mrs. Thrale from Lichfield on August the 9th. Lucy said, When I read Dr. Dodd's sermon to the prisoners, I said Dr. Johnson could not make a better. End of footnote. According to Johnson's manuscript, it began thus after the text, What shall I do to be saved? These were the words with which the keeper to whose custody Paul and Silas were committed by their prosecutors, addressed his prisoners when he saw them freed from their bonds by the perceptible agency of divine favour, and was therefore irresistibly convinced that they were not offenders against the laws, but martyrs to the truth. Dr. Johnson was so good as to mark for me with his own hand on a copy of this sermon which is now in my possession, such passages as were added by Dr. Dodd. They are not many. Whoever will take the trouble to look at the printed copy and attend to what I mention will be satisfied of this. There is a short introduction by Dr. Dodd, and he also inserted this sentence. You see with what confusion and dishonour I now stand before you, no more in the pulpit of instruction, but on this humble seat with yourselves. The notes are entirely Dodd's own, and Johnson's writing ends at the words, The thief whom he pardoned on the cross. Footnote. 
and finally we must commend and entrust our souls to him who died for the sins of men with earnest wishes and humble hopes that he will admit us with the labourers who entered the vineyard at the last hour and associate us with the thief whom he pardoned on the cross End of footnote. what follows was supplied by dr dodd himself footnote the gentleman magistrate for seventeen seventy seven says of this address as none but a convict could have written this all convicts ought to read it and we therefore recommend its being framed and hung up in all prisons mr croker italicizing could and suppressing the latter part of the sentence describes it as a criticism that must have been offensive to johnson the writer's meaning is simple enough the address he knew was delivered in the chapel of newgate by a prisoner under sentence of death if instead of written he had said delivered his meaning would have been quite clear End of footnote. the other pieces mentioned by johnson in the above-mentioned collection are two letters one to the lord chancellor bathurst not lord north as is erroneously supposed and one to lord mansfield a petition from dr dodd to the king a petition from mrs dodd to the queen observations of some length inserted in the newspapers on occasion of earl percy's having presented to his majesty a petition for mercy to dodd signed by twenty thousand people but all in vain he told me that he had also written a petition from the city of london but said he with a significant smile they mended it footnote having unexpectedly by the favour of mr stone of london field hackney seen the original in johnson's handwriting of the petition of the city of london to his majesty in favour of mr dodd that William Dodd, Doctor of Laws, now lying under sentence of death in your Majesty's jail of Newgate for the crime of forgery, has for a great part of his life set a useful and laudable example of diligence in his calling, and as we have reason to believe, has exercised his ministry with great fidelity and efficacy, which in many instances has produced the most happy effect that he has been the first institutor or and a very earnest and active promoter of several modes of useful charity and that therefore he may be considered as having been on many occasion a benefactor to the public that when they consider his past life they are willing to suppose his late crime to have been not the consequence of habitual depravity but the suggestion of some sudden and violent temptation that your petitioners therefore considering his case as in some of its circumstances unprecedented and peculiar and encouraged by your majesty's known clemency they most humbly recommend the said william dodd to his your majesty's most gracious consideration in hopes that he will be found not altogether unfit unworthy to stand an example of royal mercy boswell End of footnote. 
the last of these articles which johnson wrote is dr dodd's last solemn declaration which he left with the sheriff at the place of execution here also my friend marked the variations on a copy of that piece now in my possession dodd inserted i never knew or attended to the calls of frugality or the needful minuteness of painful o economy and in the next sentence he introduced the words which i distinguish by italics my life for some few unhappy years past has been dreadfully erroneous johnson's expression was hypocritical but his remark on the margin is with this he said he could not charge himself having thus authentically settled what part of the occasional papers concerning dr dodd's miserable situation came from the pen of johnson i shall proceed to present my readers with my record of the unpublished writings relating to that extraordinary and interesting matter i found a letter to dr johnson from dr dodd may the twenty third seventeen seventy seven in which the convict's address seems clearly to be meant i am so penetrated my ever dear sir with a sense of your extreme benevolence towards me that i cannot find words equal to the sentiments of my heart you are too conversant in the world to need the slightest hint from me of what infinite utility the speech on the awful day has been to me footnote his speech at the old bailey when found guilty boswell End of footnote. i experience every hour some good effect from it i am sure that effects still more salutary and important must follow from your kind and intended favour i will labour god being my helper to do justice to it from the pulpit i am sure had i your sentiments constantly to deliver from thence in all their mighty force and power not a soul could be left unconvinced and unpersuaded he added may god almighty bless and reward with his choicest comforts your philanthropic actions and enable me at all times to express what i feel of the high and uncommon obligations which i owe to the first man in our times on sunday june the twenty-second he writes begging dr johnson's assistance in framing a supplicatory letter to his majesty if his majesty could be moved of his royal clemency to spare me and my family the horrors and ignominy of a public death which the public itself is solicitous to waive and to grant me in some silent distant corner of the globe to pass the remainder of my days in penitence and prayer i would bless his clemency and be humbled the letter was brought to dr johnson when in church he stooped down and read it and wrote when he went home the following letter for dr dodd to the king sir may it not offend your majesty that the most miserable of men applies himself to your clemency as his last hope and his last refuge that your mercy is most earnestly and humbly implored by a clergyman whom your laws and judges have condemned to the horror and ignominy of a public execution 
I confess the crime, and own the enormity of its consequences, and the danger of its example. Nor have I the confidence to petition for impunity, but humbly hope that public security may be established without the spectacle of a clergyman dragged through the streets, to a death of infamy, amidst the derision of the profligate and profane, and that justice may be satisfied with irrevocable exile, perpetual disgrace, and hopeless penury. My life, sir, has not been useless to mankind. I have benefited many, but my offences against God are numberless, and I have had little time for repentance. Preserve me, sir, by your prerogative of mercy, from the necessity of appearing unprepared at that tribunal, before which kings and subjects must stand at least together. Permit me to hide my guilt in some obscure corner of a foreign country, where, if I can ever attain confidence to hope that my prayers will be heard, they shall be poured with all the fervour of gratitude for the life and happiness of your majesty. I am, sir, your majesty's, and etc. Subjoined to it was written as follows. To Dr. Dodd, sir, I most seriously enjoin you not to let it be at all known that I have written this letter, and to return the copy to Mr. Allen in a cover to me. I hope I need not tell you that I wish it success, but do not indulge hope. Tell nobody. It happened luckily that Mr. Allen was pitched on to assist in this melancholy office, for he was a great friend of Mr. Akerman, the keeper of Newgate. Dr. Johnson never went to see Dr. Dodd. He said to me, It would have done him more harm than good to Dodd, who once expressed a desire to see him, but not earnestly. Dr. Johnson on the 20th of June, wrote the following letter to the Right Honourable Charles Jenkinson. Sir, since the conviction and condemnation of Dr. Dodd, I have had, by the intervention of a friend, some intercourse with him, and I am sure that I shall lose nothing in your opinion by tenderness and commiseration. Whatever be the crime, it is not easy to have any knowledge of the delinquent without a wish that his life may be spared, at least when no life has been taken away by him. I will therefore take the liberty of suggesting some reasons for which I wish this unhappy being to escape the utmost rigour of his sentence. He is, so far as I can recollect, the first clergyman of our church who has suffered public execution for immorality and I know not whether it would not be more for the interest of religion to bury such an offender in the obscurity of perpetual exile than to expose him in a cart and on the gallows to all who for any reason are enemies to the clergy. The supreme power has in all ages paid some attention to the voice of the people, and that voice does not least deserve to be heard when it calls out for mercy. There is now a very general desire that Dodd's life should be spared. More is not wished, and perhaps this is not too much to be granted. 
if you sir have any opportunity of enforcing these reasons you may perhaps think them worthy of consideration but whatever you determine i most respectfully entreat that you will be pleased to pardon for this intrusion sir your most obedient and most humble servant sam johnson it has been confidently circulated with invidious remarks that to this letter no attention whatever was paid by mr jenkinson afterwards earl of liverpool and that he did not even deign to show the common civility of owning the receipt of it footnote in the second edition he is described as now lord hawkesbury he had entered public life as lord bute's private secretary and according to Horace Walpole, continued in it as his tool. Walpole speaks of him as one of the Jesuits of the Treasury, and the director or agent of all the king's secret councils. His appearance was abject, his countenance betrayed a consciousness of secret guilt, and though his ambition and rapacity were insatiate, his demeanour exhibited such a want of spirit that, had he stood forth as prime minister which he really was his very look would have encouraged opposition the third earl of liverpool wrote to mr croker on december the seventh eighteen forty five very shortly before george the third's accession my father became confidential secretary of lord bute if you can call secretary a man who all through his life was so bad a penman that he always dictated everything and of whom although i have a house full of papers i have scarcely any in his own hand the editor is in error in saying that the earl of liverpool who wrote this was the son of the prime minister he was his half-brother end of footnote end of section sixteen